For those of you newer to our church community, my name is Paul Gardner. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I want to piggyback a little bit before I formally begin and just say happy Father's Day to all you fathers. And speaking pastorally to us as a church, I want to say two things. First, I am so proud of many of, of the men in our church and how they live as fathers. I get to experience some amazing moments with some of you, and I'm, I'm thankful for the type of men we have in this church. They model the goodness and greatness of our Heavenly Father in some, some amazing, awesome ways. And so I'm thankful to be part of that time, type of church. Second, I know, as Steve prayed earlier, I know Father's Day is a challenging day personally for many of us. Some of you have lost your own fathers. Some of you had fathers who were abusive or who abandoned you or who were neglectful. Your story of your relationship with your father leads you to grieve and sometimes even struggle with bitterness. So in in addition to being thankful for the men in this church, I very much grieve the state of fatherhood many of you have experienced. And in, in, in some ways... I know it is a challenging day for many of us. Now, by nature of where we're at in the text this morning, I'm not going to speak about the challenge of fatherlessness. Instead, I'm going to speak about a different challenge, the challenge of materialism, or believing that ultimate value and worth is in acquiring material possessions and material pleasures. So to to get us warmed up along those lines this morning, I want to share a few brief statistics from a PBS show cleverly titled Affluenza, because it puts on display how the pursuit of affluence or the pursuit of riches is destroying our culture at epidemic proportions. Here's stat number one. The average American now shops, and this could be online shopping or actual shopping out in the community, the average American shops six hours a week, but spends only 40 minutes playing with his or her children. By the age of 20, the average television viewer has seen one million commercials. So you think about all the time and money that are invested in putting those commercials together. Recently, more Americans declared bankruptcy than graduated from college. And in 90% of divorce cases, when individuals cite the primary reasons they're getting divorced, arguments over money are one of the biggest reasons. Those are, that's the state of the culture we live in. So the springboard from Scripture for this conversation comes from the passage read earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've been working our way through the letter since Easter, learning how the Apostle Paul is discipling a young leader to help him understand how a healthy church is to live and function, the type of doctrine a healthy church is to to have, the type of leaders a healthy church is to uphold, how a healthy church is to pray and give. And one of the recurring items that has surfaced is there's this group of individuals that are stirring up controversy. 
They're causing strife. They're causing dissension. They're upsetting the people. And so as we come near the end of this letter, Paul again brings up these individuals and he sheds a little bit of light on their motivation. He tells Timothy, these individuals have embraced godliness as a means of personal gain. Essentially, they're like some individuals today, maybe televangelists or, or preachers or musicians. Maybe they're the makers of Jesus jewelry or scripture or soap. They do not necessarily embrace the Christian faith, but they market for personal gain to those who do. So they use an image of godliness to gain cultural status and cultural wealth. Individuals marketing an image of godliness for personal gain, to gain material pleasure and material possessions. This is what Paul is addressing. Now, one of the things Paul does in this passage is to use this situation to surface a common sinful struggle. It's not just people who market godliness for personal gain that struggle with materialism. Many people do. So he uses this as an opportunity to talk about the dangers of materialism or believing that the things we're ultimately after, the things we long for, is gaining material possessions and gaining material wealth. This is their worldview. How will, how will Paul address such thinking? What will he say? Well, one of the things we know is that Paul rejects a worldview that would deny experiencing material pleasure or material possessions altogether. In what was read earlier in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 6, there was a a section uh, uh, where Paul actually addressed the rich. And he does not tell them to forsake material possessions and pleasures, but he does tell them to not set their hope on worldly riches. A few weeks ago, back in chapter 4, we saw Paul encounter some teaching that in order to be healthy, in order to be right with God, people needed to abstain from certain foods and to abstain from marriage. To be truly holy, one should reject material possessions and material pleasures as much as possible. Some in the culture and some in the church believe and teach this today. It's called a poverty gospel. The pursuit of the material is bad, so we need to reject it altogether. Paul challenged individuals who taught such things. He said, material pleasures and possessions are created by God. As such, they are to be received with thanksgiving. So asceticism or, or this belief that enjoying material pleasures or material possessions is bad altogether Paul rejects it. That's not how to address sins of materialism. So so rather than embrace that type of belief, Paul challenges Timothy to embrace something called godliness with contentment. This is how a healthy church addresses materialism. So our big idea this morning is to reject materialism, a healthy church embraces godliness with contentment. Paul draws Timothy's attention to how the materialist has embraced a faulty worldview. 
rather than embrace Christ, rather than embrace godliness with contentment, the materialist embraces material possessions, material pleasures, material wealth as ultimate gain. So we'll examine how a materialist and a Christian have contrasting views of three things. People, time, and possessions. So let's begin with people. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let's begin in verse 3. The words will be on the screen if you do not have your Bible with you. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Paul is reminding Timothy that there's these individuals and what they were about. They were, they were focused not so much on teaching the gospel or helping people have character in con- consistent with the gospel. They were teaching these tertiary doctrines or these ancillary teachings that were actually drawing people away from the gospel or living lives consistent with the gospel. So he, these people, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. As we said earlier, these individuals were using an appearance of godliness or an image of godliness as a means of personal gain. They were preying on weaker individuals to gain status and wealth. They were drawing in crowds who were maybe weak in the faith. Maybe they were newer Christians. Maybe they were not yet Christians. Maybe they were less mature Christians. And they were drawing these people in for personal gain. This is the perspective of a materialist. Materialists love material pleasure and material possessions so much, they will use people to get them causing relational or emotional or spiritual damage. Randy Alcorn, he's an evangelical pastor who has written much on the topic of the challenge of materialism facing our culture. Let me share an illustration from his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, that that highlights this kind of thing. And this is a book that I'd highly recommend, by the way. I know a man and woman who were invited to dinner by two close friends who'd recently be Become involved in multi-level sales. So think like Advocare or LuLaRoe uh, or essential oils. In this case, it was a cleaning product. Before dinner was served, the man noticed out of the corner of his eye that his host had deliberately tipped over the gravy bowl, spilling it onto the tablecloth. Saying something like, clumsy me, he marched into the kitchen and then reappeared with a bottle of cleaning fluid. He proceeded to demonstrate its amazing ability to get gravy stains out of tablecloths, and then launched into a sales pitch for his organization and its wonderful products. The visiting couple was deeply hurt and shaken by deception and manipulation. It wasn't only the end of the evening, 
but the end of a long friendship. The man told me, it's no problem if someone asks me to buy something. I can just say yes or no. But when people set you up like that, and especially good Christian friends, something is really wrong. When we primarily see others as objects for personal gain, we're willing to deceive or manipulate or use or harm them. We're willing to prey upon them to get what we want. This is very much the perspective of a materialist. I use others as objects to get what I want, and I care little about the relational or emotional or spiritual impact it may have on them. I was reminded in the last couple of weeks this act of using others for personal gain, it starts at a very young age. Our youngest daughter, Olivia, she's four. She had a couple examples play out recently that I want to share. One, she she wanted to get some candy from her mommy and daddy. And and in this particular moment, we said no. So she comes into her daddy's arms, and she, she looks into my eyes, and she says, Daddy, why can't I have some candy? Why does Josh get to have candy whenever he wants? Not true, by the way. What is, what is she doing? She's manipulating her daddy as an object to give her some candy. She's preying on his generosity for her personal gain. Unfortunately for her, she has a daddy who sees right through this. Another example, she's playing outside with a friend, and the friend wants her to play a particular game that Olivia and another girl, they don't want to play. And so the friend says to her, fine, you're not going to be my friend anymore. Olivia comes in, she's she's hurt. She tells me this story. What what has this friend done? She's trying to manipulate Olivia as an object to get what she wants for her personal gain. Are you willing to manipulate or deceive or use others for your personal gain? Maybe it's not the financial gain that you're looking for, but you could be looking to gain relational security or maybe a sense of confidence or competence or maybe you want affirmation or a sense of belonging. To get those things, you're willing to deceive or manipulate or use others. You you may not say things like, fine, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. But when someone doesn't give you what you want, that's essentially the outcome. You pull back. You withdraw. I want you to think about the people in your life for a minute. Think, visualize them. Maybe they're people who live in your neighborhood. Maybe they're people in your workplace. Maybe they're people in this church. When you think of them, Do you primarily think about what you're getting or not getting from them? People in a healthy church do not primarily view others as people they get from, but rather individuals they give to. If you were here last week, you know they don't necessarily give in ways that enable or uh, uh, according to the expectations of others, but they give. People in a healthy church They give prayers for all kinds of people. People in a healthy church, when others sin or make mistakes that hurt them, they give forgiveness and patience at a personal cost to them. People in a healthy church give money to people who are vulnerable and to godly leaders who serve. 
people in a healthy church, they give hospitality to others who may or may not know the gospel. People in a healthy church do not primarily view others as objects they are to get and gain from. Rather, they view them as people they are to give to. This is how a Christian contrasts with a materialist in how they view people. Now, let's move on to time. So if the materialist has the perspective that people are objects of personal gain, their perspective of time is to live for the moment. The materialist lives to acquire material possessions and material pleasures. Perhaps you're familiar with a few of their contemporary slogans and creeds, which are very prominent today, and I've, I've brought a few with me. You only live once. I mean, you've got to do whatever you can in, in this life to get from it. Or if you're a teenager, YOLO, right? Live for the moment because everything else is uncertain. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? This life is all about acquiring as much as we can today, and that those who acquire the most, they win. No regrets. Make sure you don't do anything that you would regret later. Take it all in. Or perhaps this one from Mark Twain. Life is short. Break the rules. Forgive quickly. Kiss slowly. Laugh uncontrollably. And never regret anything that makes you smile. Life in this moment, that's what matters. In the book I mentioned earlier, Randy Alcorn provides this picture of a, of a dot and a line. I think of our lives in terms of a dot and a line signifying two phases. Our present life on earth is the dot. It begins. It ends. It's brief. However, from the dot, a line extends that goes on forever. That line is eternity, which Christians will spend in heaven. Right now, we're living on the dot. The person with perspective lives for the line. This earth and our time here is the dot. So it's not, it's not that the Christian doesn't embrace living in the moment, but the Christian does not embrace living in the moment for worldly gain. They leverage living in the moment for eternal gain. It, as the materialist embraces living in the moment for worldly gain, this perspective, of course, drives how they spend their time and how they spend their money. So they do not give their time to better understand who God is or to better understand who the people of God are or to better understand how to become a more mature, more mature follower of Christ. They do not give their money to the church or, or to care for the vulnerable. Rather, they are interested to give their time and money on momentary pleasures or earthly possessions. So rather than investing in eternity, they're going to invest in that dot. Think about the culture around you. Think about the people in your life, the people in your workplace, the people in your neighborhood, People in your church, think about yourself. How do you see people, how do you see them live for that dot rather than living for the line? Rather than giving to eternity, what do they give their time and money to? Let me give you a few other words that start with E, which I want to say are not necessarily bad things. 
but in very real ways, they demonstrate how subtly we live for the dot rather than live for the line. So, so exercise. Exercise starts with E. Running, gym memberships, personal trainers. The average American is now spending $155 a month and countless hours on gym memberships, personal trainers, meal plans, supplements, and workout gear. Two, entertainment. Americans love spending money on entertainment, from movies to music to video games. According to 2,000 statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average household spent nearly $230 a month on music, movies, and video games. This, This may not sound like much, but when you compare it to the reality that the average household only gives away, not even necessarily to the church, $143 a month. It helps put it in a little bit of perspective. We value the dot. And we value our dot. The third E, education. That's something we should all value, right? However, when when we think about it, a lot of education costs are very much about the dot. College education, private school education, tutors, postgraduate education. I recently had the opportunity to visit with a couple of new physical therapy grads. That's what I do Monday through Friday. And through the college and graduate years, one of them had acquired college debt of $230,000, and the other one had acquired college debt of $280,000. Neither had any idea how they would pay these debts off. Massive educational spending has become a cultural norm. As we get more wealthy... We are subtly shifting more and more of our money and time away from living for the line to invest in the dot. The materialist lives for the dot. Here's what Paul says to Timothy to challenge such thinking. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. The possessions you acquire... The pleasures you experience in this life, you can't take them with you. When your heart stops beating, the time and resources invested in material pleasure and wealth, it's not going to matter. So rather than live for the dot, live for the line. Paul teaches Christians to embrace godliness with contentment. And as he does this, interestingly, he doesn't dismiss thinking about personal gain. Paul actually says, embracing living for godliness with contentment, it is great gain. It doesn't compare. How many of you have heard of the marshmallow experiment? Marshmallow experiment. How many of you guys? Okay, so these these are a series of studies that were conducted in the 60s and 70s that have been in the news recently because they've been repeated. So for those less familiar, what they do is they take a child around the ages of four or five and they lead them to a room free of distraction and they offer them a treat like a marshmallow or an Oreo cookie. The child can eat that treat immediately, but if they wait 15 minutes... Then they'll, they'll double what they get. They'll give them a second Oreo cookie or a second marshmallow. Over two-thirds of children, they're unable to wait for the second treat. 
Most children settle for immediate satisfaction rather than the delayed gratification of greater gain. Aren't we like the four- or five-year-old in the marshmallow experiment? We'd rather get the most immediate satisfaction from the dot for our personal gain. When we make decisions about where to live, what job to have, or if we should live on a budget or not, or what type of budget we should have, we live for the dot. It's tangible. It's immediate. In many ways, it's what we believe is ultimate. Paul says, rather than seek to get from the dot where there is some gain, pursue godliness and have even greater gain. Here's more from Alcorn. Our beloved bridegroom, the coming wedding, the great reunion, and our eternal home in the new heavens and new earth, they're all on the line. The person who lives for the dot lives for treasures on earth that ends in junkyards. The person who lives for the line lives for treasures in heaven that never end. Pursue godliness with contentment. It is better gain. It is a better life. It is living for the sake of eternity. Rather than live for the moment, the Christian lives for the line. This is how we view time differently. Now, the third contrast for the materialist and the Christian is our view of possessions. If the materialist perspective of people is that they are objects to be used for gain, and their perspective of time is to live for the moment, their perspective of possessions and worldly wealth is that they are to be worshipped. Rather than embracing Christ for ultimate peace and comfort, they embrace more possessions. To challenge such a belief, Paul says, but if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The individual who embraces godliness with contentment, they are content with little. Food and clothing, a roof over their head, they don't need much more. But the materialist, those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation. They are never satisfied. So what what does it mean What does it mean to desire to be rich? What kind of lifestyle are we talking about? Here's more from Randy Alcorn. We must lay aside our illusions and realize that when Scripture speaks of the rich, it is not talking about them, but us. Those we think of as rich today are really the mega wealthy, but it is us, the rich, to whom Paul is speaking The concession to rich Christians immediately follows a sobering warning of what awaits those who desire to get rich. If we are rich, and and we are, we aren't necessarily living in sin, but we are certainly under great temptation to sin. And most rich people succumb to that temptation. Those who desire to be rich, those who desire to be more wealthy, they will always desire more. The more things we own, the more they grip us, the more they hold us, the more they suck the life out of us. 
Paul is telling his audience, he is telling rich Christians like many of us, beware. Material wealth has a tendency to capture your heart. Satan uses the pursuit of material wealth to reel you in. It will not lead to contentment. You will not be satisfied. And ultimately, it will draw your heart away from God. This is what verse 10 says. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There is nothing inherently wrong with money. Money is not a root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money or the devotion to money. There's something very wrong and demonic with that. It, It is a root of all kinds of evil. Embracing such a love or such a desire leads individuals to wander from the faith or to reject Christ altogether. As John Calvin says, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. So how how do we know if the way in which we handle our money and possessions crosses over into sin? How do we know when we live amongst a materialistic culture if Christ or material wealth holds the dominion of our heart? I can tell you for me, the, the desire to be rich, the, the desire to long for material wealth, it is an everyday struggle. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be as rich as the mega wealthy. I, I don't want to be as rich as Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. That seems way too hard. But I desire to be as rich as the average American living out the American dream. So long as I am that rich, I am content. I am satisfied. Because that desire is acceptable in my culture, I'm often blind to the sins of materialism in my own heart. Listen to author and pastor Timothy Keller. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. Why can't anyone in the grip of greed see it? Once you're able to live in a particular neighborhood, send your children to its schools, and to participate in its social life, you will find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people with more money than you. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. So we don't think of ourselves as embracing love for money and possessions because we see people who have more money and possessions. We see how they spend their money and and use their possessions and we judge and critique and compare. When we see how they live, we rationalize, I must not be living like a materialist. So my family and I, we were in Colorado earlier this month camping. And we, we travel the, the country in this pop-up camper that is visibly held together by duct tape, okay? And when I, when I pack up this camper, I have to secure it together with more duct tape. My kids are going to have some crazy stories. 
So when I'm out camping, I don't think of myself as a materialist because I compare myself to the people who have the camping site next to me. They got a a brand new fifth wheel. It's got a big screen TV in it. Certainly doesn't have any duct tape. It's got got a wine refrigerator in it. It's got a nice bedroom inside. And they're they're certainly the materialists. When I consider whether or not I embrace the sins of materialism, I don't compare myself to the people living in global poverty who make two or three dollars a day. I don't think about all the time and energy and money I've put into making this particular vacation happen. I think about those people next to me without fifth wheel. And I know they're materialist. I'm not. So if we're prone to rationalize, if we're prone to compare ourselves to others, how do we ensure we do not embrace sins of materialism? We know from, from chapter 4 and verses 17 through 19 in chapter 6, the answer to it isn't to embrace a lifestyle of poverty. It isn't about rejecting material pleasures and possessions altogether. So let me give you a few thoughts. Giving. Verse 18 actually says this. They are to do good. This is, this is, this is an instruction to the rich. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to, to share. So, so the Bible teaches us as Christians we're to give. The Old Testament standard was 10% or a tithe. The, the New Testament standard is a little different. According to 2 Corinthians 9, Christians are to give cheerfully and bountifully. So do you give to the church? Or do you hold on to your money and possessions? When you give, do you give bountifully? Do you give cheerfully? Are you excited to give to the kingdom? Or are you a stingy giver? Do you give the leftovers? Are you more concerned that you get momentary pleasures and monetary possessions first? Two, how is your money spent? Do you live on a budget? It's not, it's not that budgets are the law to experiencing freedom from sins related to how you handle money. I mean, you can certainly embrace sins of materialism on a budget. But here's what a budget says. I'm free from living for the moment. It's not the dot that owns how I spend my money. The plan of how to direct my finances does. So how are your finances directed? Beyond a budget, are you, are you open to letting others speak in to how you spend and evaluate how you spend your money? This would be, this would be a great exercise this summer. I mean, a scary exercise for sure. But why don't you open your budget, open how you spend your money to people you trust? Open, open it up to someone who will challenge you and ask questions and probe you about how you spend those resources. Not someone who spends money like, like us on entertainment or education or exercise. Let others speak in to what they notice about how you value, about what you value and how you spend your money. And three, we root out potential love for material possessions and pleasures by cultivating a deeper love for Christ. 
if Paul is saying embracing the desire for money leads us away from loving Christ, increasing desire for more of Christ leads us away from loving money. It leads us away from ultimately pursuing wealth and possessions. It leads us away from having anxiety of if it will be enough. It leads us away from daydreaming and ultimately longing for satisfaction in the dot. Before the launching of First City Church, there's a picture I shared with the core team that planted this church. And that picture was, it was a group of people. They were standing before the cross. And they were standing before the cross and they were worshiping Christ. And as they were worshiping Christ, their hands were open. They weren't clinging on to the things of the world. They weren't looking to get things from others. They were looking to get from Christ. They were looking to Christ for their ultimate gain. This is a picture of embracing godliness with contentment. 1 Timothy 3.16 teaches us what godliness is. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. When we are focused on Christ, the love of possessions does not rule our heart. Possessions are not the thing we worship. Christ is. As such, we don't long for more possessions, but rather we're longing for our possessions to be used for his glory. The solution to materialism is not rejecting material wealth altogether. It is deepening our affections for Christ. It is deepening our affections for what he has done for us. He gave away his status and his riches and his life for our gain. And so we don't have to have more riches. We don't have to get more wealth. We don't have to compare or covet or desire or be anxious Because we've already been given more riches and more wealth in him than we will ever be satisfied with.